Hey, Gordo, why don't you tell us a story? Uh, I don't know. Oh, come on. Yeah, come on, Gordo. Not one of your horror stories, okay? I don't want to hear no horror stories. I'm not up for that, man. Welcome to Now Playing's Different Seasons Retrospective Series. Put your trust in the Lord. Your ass belongs to me. Welcome to Shawshank. Part of the Now Playing Stephen King movie series. You'd have to be brilliant. Can you do that? I know I can. Join Arnie, Stuart, and Jacob as they review the film adaptations from Stephen King's 1982 collection, The Shawshank Redemption. In 1966, Andy Dufresne escaped from Shawshank Prison. All they found of him was a muddy set of prison clothes and an old rock hammer. I remember thinking it would take a man 600 years to tunnel through the wall with it. Old Andy did it in less than 20. Apt pupil. He wanted to know everything. That was how he put it, yes. Everything. And stand by me. I was 12 going on 13 the first time I saw a dead human being. It happened in the summer of 1959, a long time ago. But only if you measure in terms of years. Join us at NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for a new installment of this series. And keep coming back as we continue to look at all the movies based on the writings of Stephen King. We talked into the night. The kind of talk that seemed important until you discover girls. And join Arnie at BooksAndNachos.com for in-depth reviews of all of Stephen King's books and short stories. Where do you get this shit? I read it. These podcasts contain detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. Rule number one, no blasphemy. I'll not have the Lord's name taken in vain in my prison. Listener discretion is advised. I guess it comes down to a simple choice, really. Get busy living, or get busy dying. Today we're discussing Apt Pupil, starring Brad Renfro, Ian McKellen, directed by Brian Singer. This is the now playing co-host who used to chase girls for fun, but now I chase movies, Arnie. Stuart in LA. And this is the host that's always facing right, Jacob. And I keep telling you to stop and you just keep going, going, going. Look, Arnie, you missed someone. There's a third actor in this, David Schwimmer. <laughs> There's several actors in this, but yeah, maybe only two count. Yeah, there's that guy from Dawson's Creek. Yeah, Joshua Jackson the, from the Mighty Ducks. and <laughs> Yes, the Mighty Ducks as well. Jubilee's in this movie, people. Not anyone that was in a singer X-Men. She was Jubilee in Generation X. Becky Trask. Oh, I was going to say Jubilee was barely in that X-Men apocalypse. <laughs> no, no, she was the star of that TV movie. <laughs> so she did work again. Well, we also have the senator from the X-Men movie. He's in here as Todd's father. I mean, Brian Singer met some people making this film that he'd be like, hey, I'm making a superhero movie. You want to come along? Like, say, Ian McKellen? Yes, Brian Singer, we know today as a man that makes superhero movies. Even though I wish he wouldn't. Because that's pretty much all that he does anymore. But when this movie appeared, it was the follow-up to what probably was the career-defining moment, Usual Suspects. 
he could have made anything at that point. They would have let him. But he chose to make a story from different seasons. The longest story in that collection. Yeah, this one has a bit of a backstory to it. I will be covering all of different seasons over at Books and Nachos in the future. But really, this is a short story collection that came out in 82. And this is a movie that has been in production since pretty much right after it was published. Pre-production. Well, pre-production, production, depending on how you want to look at it. 40 minutes of this was filmed starring Ricky Schroeder. <laughs> oh, yeah. I remember hearing about that. I remember. I thought that was the stand. I knew that Ricky Schroeder had filmed something Stephen King and it never got released. And I was like, that's impossible. He's too big a star for them to lock away. <laughs> Yeah, what happened was in the very early 80s, like in 83, they started pre-production and James Mason was going to be playing the Ian McKellen role. And then in 84, before they could start filming, Mason died of a heart attack. So they then got Richard Burton to fill in and they were going to keep shooting and planning on shooting in 84, 85. But the Mason's replacement, Richard Burton, died also. Yeah, these are not healthy men. So then in 87, they got it with Nicole Williamson as the elderly Nazi and Ricky Schroeder in what will become the Brad Renfro role. They shot for 10 weeks, had 40 minutes of movie done, and ran out of money. Hmm. <laughs> this isn't like a big special effects thing. They, they, ran, they must not have much to begin with then. It's a controversial movie to make. It would be easy to see that this would be something that investors would shy away from. You say, let's make a Stephen King movie. Sure, give me some ghosts, give me some killer <laughs> cars, maybe a rabid dog, but give me a Nazi and an American teen that idolizes him. It's hot button stuff. I've got to say, when I read Different Seasons, this was the story that stuck out for me. This was the one that I thought had the most provocative premise. I've always been a body fan myself. I think I remembered all the stories individually. Actually, the one they've never made a movie of, even though I read this long before Apt Pupil or Shawshank were movies, it was the one with the headless birth called Breathing Method that I barely remember. But the other three stories stick with me. I think because I'd seen Stand By Me before reading Different Seasons, that's always been my favorite. 98! Big year for Nazi cinema. I mean, at Pupil, which I didn't read the short story. I didn't see the film until I watched it for this review. I figured from that poster I always saw, yeah, it's a old Nazi trying to recruit people. I mean, American History X came out the same year, which is Ed Norton as a Nazi and trying to be reformed and dealing with similar subject matter. I think that one did a little bit better than this one, though. Yeah, I think that it took two things for this to become commercially viable. Maybe three things. One, we needed a director who was having the cachet to do it. Two, we needed Spielberg, as is normally the case. Hollywood follows his trends. He had had a big success, both critically and more importantly, commercially, with Schindler's List. He proved that we could talk about the Holocaust in movies and people would show up. So I think that that was a factor. And I also think that Shawshank went on to be a hit on video, probably made them feel like it was worth pursuing another story in different seasons. This had a bumpy road, though. First of all, Singer 
he had been a fan of King's and a fan of this short story since the 80s, and he just couldn't believe nobody had ever made it. And before he ever had usual suspects out or anything, he got a friend of his to write the script for this on spec, and based upon sending King the usual suspect script, King sold him the rights for this movie for, once again, $1. This is another dollar, baby, with the caveat that King would make more money if a studio actually agreed to do this. Yeah, exactly. If you make it on your own in your backyard, I'll charge you a dollar. But I can't imagine that once he saw that it was a real movie that people were going to pay to see, he would be okay with that. But before Usual Suspects, though, huh? Yeah, he gave Singer the rights, though. Singer had commercial rights to shop this around. King actually had sued the people who had the rights previously in 95. And King got the rights back and then gave Singer exclusive license for a dollar. Now, who knows how long that would have gone on, but Singer, based upon just his tenacity and he impressed King, got this going. And he started working on this again before Usual Suspects came out, and they actually had a situation. They were set to start filming this in 96, but the producer was Scott Rudin. He did the first Wives Club. Oh my God, Scott Rudin is you know, one of the biggest independent producers in Hollywood. He's he's a big deal. He A lot of books that have trouble finding people that want to make them, he ends up making those movies. Well, he and Singer had some creative and financial difficulties. Rudin also said that some of his hesitation was chemical. Now, I don't know if he means Singer was using or if it was meaning he and Singer had bad chemistry, but Rudin pulled out and it put this film delayed at a year and finally Singer got somebody else to finance and got this made. It had a long delay, though. It was filmed in early 97 and it sat around for about a year before it finally made it out. There was a lot of other controversy around this film that I think they wanted to kind of pass a little bit, clear the air a little before they released this into theaters. Yeah, I remember that. That's what I remember most about this movie coming out, that it came out under the cloud of lawsuits and people being unhappy and, in general, just not having a good vibe to it. So the, although I wanted to see the next film by the man that made Usual Suspects, I never got around to it. I didn't go in theaters. It disappeared pretty quickly. I don't think it was considered in any way a success. And uh, I just never caught up to it, but was always curious, particularly after reading the story a couple months ago. I saw this in theaters opening weekend. I mean, a Stephen King-based movie. I saw most all of those in theaters. But then, from the director of The Usual Suspects, people who've listened to us review X-Men films and Superman Returns may not know, but after Usual Suspects, I worshipped Singer. I thought he was the next Tarantino. I didn't care what he made next. I wanted to see that in theaters. No, I think after Real Genius, Usual Suspects is your number two go-to reference. <laughs> I just, I love everything about that movie. I love every actor. I love the filming choices. And again, I think I mentioned this once, Brian Singer is the first time I ever heard a director's commentary when I bought the three VHS set of Usual Suspects. And they had one VHS tape that was the whole movie with commentary. I mean, I was a Singer diehard 
And so, yeah, I was one of the very few people to see this in theaters. I mean, Singer didn't get his money from that one producer. This movie only cost $14 million to make, and it did not make its money back. And because of that, I had a hard time even finding it for this review. The DVD is out of print. Yeah, Netflix can't get it on disc. I had to search for it. I was able to get it high def from iTunes, but I looked at the disc. There's like this fluff six minute featurette. There's no commentary. Keep in mind, this was the late 90s. Everything was getting a commentary. There's something about Mary had an hour of cutscenes. I mean, movies that did not need behind the scenes features were getting hours of bonus features. This thing was shat onto a disc and then quickly made out of print. I don't even think the Blu-ray's been available in the States. Well, I mean, let's just get to the heart of it. Maybe the people that were involved in making it are sequestered. They couldn't talk about it because there were lawsuits. And while that fluff featurette you're talking about has a bunch of people effusing about how much they loved working for this visionary director, that does not appear to be the way most people felt behind the scenes. Arnie, what can you tell us about what happened on set? Well, we're going to be talking about a shower scene that happens in this film. And that scene that is in this film is not what was filmed originally. And I'm really trying not to get into too much gossip here. I'm really just trying to report on the facts. And what I can say is this was filmed and allegedly some underage boys, specifically a 14-year-old extra, objected to the full nudity that was required. And allegedly somebody on set told him you will get fully naked, or you will be fired. This made him uncomfortable, and the 14-year-old did file a lawsuit, and two other extras, a boy 16 and another boy 17, supported that claim. They all were suing for trauma, seeking charges of infliction of emotional distress, negligence, and invasion of privacy. Hmm. This is less juicy than I thought it would be. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'm really trying to dance around some of the stuff. Here's what I've read online, and just take all of this as allegedly. The boys were saying there was a obviously gay photographer taking a lot of still photos of them. They felt ogled. They felt preyed upon by a primarily gay crew. And at this point, Singer was in the closet. There's a very interesting Entertainment Weekly article where he's talking to this reporter about how he'd like to find a nice woman and settle down. Well, he's saying that in the aftermath of a lawsuit in which he was accused of pedophilia. Okay. And this is a stigma that would stir up around Singer again around the time of Days of Future Past. But this did go to court. Criminal charges were dismissed for lack of evidence. Mm -hmm. So there's been nothing found wrong criminally who knows what happened civilly is that because people are paid off and so they decided not to testify which happens so many times in these kind of cases yeah but also i would just say that just based on what you're saying there a 14 year old shouldn't have been in that situation to begin with they should have been let go so the fact that he was there probably lying about his age I mean, I can't imagine he'd be allowed on set if he was to do these things if he was 14 years old, if he was a minor. He told the people on the set, I am underage, and they said, we don't care. 
Interesting. Allegedly. Okay. Well, yes, I can see why that would be discussed in court, but it doesn't sound like there was any allegations of actual molestation or they felt uncomfortable and they didn't want to be fired and it ended up in court. I think that's the version we could talk about without getting sued. Yeah. Okay. Well, all right. It's just interesting because I know that this movie does deal a lot with if you probe into dark subject matter, it may overtake you. That's kind of a theme of that pupil. So I thought it was curious that the director himself may have been perceived by some of this crew and cast to have fallen in that way. But this doesn't seem to be as scandalous as I I had always heard. No, the X-Men Days of Future Past stuff was far more scandalous that involved alleged use of drugs to coerce people and things like that. This was all about boys who just felt that things were inappropriate and... Why didn't they quit? I guess that would be my answer, is if you don't like something that you're on set for, you should leave. That's your prerogative. You live in LA. How many people would actually walk off of a set where they're going to be in a major motion picture? I know a lot of people that have done that. Do they work again? Come on, Corey Feldman has exposed the cabal of Hollywood execs that go after young people, supposedly. I mean, I say that kind of in jest, but he, he said that's what led to Corey Haim's death. Both Renfro and River Phoenix, if you're to believe gossip and all alleged, they had bad experiences as young children on sets. Hollywood predators took advantage of them, plied them with drugs, and led them to emotional troubles until they both eventually OD'd. Yeah, no, I mean, this is a sad story, and I I wouldn't deny the victims their, their story. Unfortunately, Brad Renfro is not around to make this case, and so it's difficult to talk about here. It's just, it's curious that, again, we're talking about a movie in which people do things they wouldn't normally do because they're exposed to dark secrets and dark subject matter. And it does make you wonder what made Brian Singer want to do this movie. Is there a connection? It adds to the dark allure of the subject matter. Well, if I can just kind of state my early thesis going in without tainting the overall review so much, this is one of King's stories that I've read. And up to this point, I've read everything he'd written up to 1982, this was the one that most heavily deals with a homosexual subtext. A lot of the lines in this movie are straight from that book. You've got an old man and a younger boy having an inappropriate relationship. You've got impotence in the young boy. It's not a sexual relationship, though. No, it is not a sexual relationship. I just said inappropriate. There's going to be some homoeroticism that comes out in this movie, though, between, you know, multiple male characters. And Singer takes what was in King's story, which I view more as hatred of women than gay, but he takes the homoerotic subtext and cranks it to 11. And knowing that at this point in his life, Singer was a closeted male trying to make it in Hollywood, I think that's what he saw in this story. Mm-hmm. No, it's very clear. I mean, all the things you're talking about, Jacob, I didn't really read when I read this story. They are, if they were in there at all, they're definitely not a big part of the story. They're made to be a big part of this story, I believe, because that was Singer wanting to augment them and and personalize them. Yeah, being totally fresh and new to this property, never read it, never seen it, it screams out. I, I was surprised, and we'll, we'll talk about it because I got questions why it goes there. And maybe that's just Singer, you know, working things out on film. 
Well, let's talk about it. I mean, let's talk about the plot as this movie would have you believe it. Then we can do a compare and contrast with the book as we work through it. Because I definitely feel like what was really scandalous about the book has been changed and in many ways tamed to be made into a Hollywood film. Oh, yeah. It's like... It has the same skeleton as the short story, but totally different muscles and skin. But yes, in this film, Brad Renfro plays Todd Bowden, the titular apt pupil. He's a straight-A student, and when his class covers the Nazi Holocaust, he goes extracurricular doing even more reading and research. Then on a bus ride, he happens to notice an old man, played by Ian McKellen, who is actually Kurt Dussander a Nazi major in the SS who oversaw Nazi concentration camps. Dusander is on the run and living under the name Arthur Denker, and Todd's discovery threatens his freedom. But all Todd wants is to hear first-hand accounts of what Dusander did at the camps, the experiments, the gassings, and more. If Dusander doesn't indulge Todd, the boy will go to the cops. As the stories continue, Todd buys the old man a Nazi costume for him to wear, and the more Todd gets into these stories, the more his personal life falls apart. He has nightmares. His grades go from A's to F's. He fights with his friends. He can't get it up with his girlfriend. And things come to a head when Todd has a bad report card, and Dusander poses as Todd's grandfather to appease the school guidance counselor, Edward French, played by friends David Schwimmer. <laughs> Dusander now has the upper hand and forces Todd to study. Once the boys' grades are up, Dusander and Todd bring their relationship to an end, but Dusander claims to have a safety deposit box with evidence Todd knew he was friends with a fugitive Nazi, thus stopping Todd from murdering the old torturer. They part ways, but both have a new bloodlust. Todd kills a pigeon while Dusander throws a cat in his oven. And later, Dusander is picked up by a homeless gigolo, and... The old Nazi tries to kill the bum by stabbing him in the back. But midway through the murder, Dusander has a heart attack and has to call on Todd for help. Todd finishes killing the bum and then gets Dusander medical help. But in the hospital, Dusander's roommate recognizes the Nazi and informs the authorities. Dusander awakens to promises of extradition to Israel, so he blows air into his IV tube, killing himself. Simultaneously, Todd is graduating valedictorian of his high school, but a chance meeting between Mr. French and Todd's parents reveal Todd's grandfather is wheelchair-bound. French now knows that the person pretending to be Todd's grandfather is the recently revealed Nazi, and French threatens to tell Todd's parents. So Todd says if the guidance counselor says anything, Todd will claim French has tried to molest young Todd while in school. Disturbed, French drives away, as credits roll. Yeah, first question off the bat. In reading the book, it's pretty clear to me that the main character, our young protagonist, is obsessed with the Holocaust because he doesn't really understand it. He is more impressed with the power of violence and people that can do cruel acts, that he is sort of infatuated with fascism. And thus, when he is able to find a Nazi... It's almost like, oh great, now I can learn tips. In the book, this is a child who is uh, infatuated with violence and evil deeds. 
I don't feel like it plays that way at all in this story. It's kind of confusing, like, because it's done over, really, the opening credits. Like, they just finished their week talking about the Holocaust in school, and the teacher says something, well, you know, there's lots more you could read about. So I take it, he's studious. He wants to learn more about this subject, and it's not till later on that you find out he does have this manipulative side, but they play coy at the beginning, I think. He does just play more curious and wanting to learn about this Holocaust, and I guess during his own research... I take it something switched off in his brain that made him seek this ex-Nazi that's in hiding. But it's not very clear in in the movie, I don't think. The movie's not clear about any of this. It's trying to get through it. Literally, everything we're discussing is an opening credits montage. It starts with a teacher giving some discussion about what made people do what they did and what made other people stand by, basically stating the thesis of the film. We see Brad studying. We see a moment on a bus, just a chance meeting. And then we're kind of into the story. It's really six minutes that tries to set up all of why this happens. And most of the six minutes is dialogue free. And I think that's fine. I mean, it's a film. I I have no problem with this setup, but I agree with Jacob. The reading I take in this movie is Todd is a character who wants to get an A. He is class valid Victorian and he just, he wants to do the best job. So he's doing that research because he wants an even better grade. And it's through doing all of that extracurricular that he sees a picture of Kurt as a young man and is by happenstance able to to connect it to a man that he sees on the city bus. Yeah, that's really weird because, you know, you have this flash, 1984, and it's just this scene of Todd giving googly eyes to Kurt on the bus. And then, you know, well, I guess you only get a couple of them, but you get these weird one month later flash forwards and you see what that was all about. But very confusing at the beginning, like why he's just staring down this old man and why he would even. It's weird that he read a textbook and then was able to find this Nazi. That is the gimme of the story right there. Yes, You know, we always say that we can give a movie one big thing as part of its setup. And that is going to be the setup here that I have to give it, is this Nazi happened to live in the same town as Todd, and Todd happened to be so good as to recognize somebody 40 years after the photo was taken and surreptitiously fingerprint his mailbox. (laughs) Yeah, he's taking some criminology classes. He's (laughs) dusting for prints. I think that's something important here. This movie makes Todd older than in the book. The book takes place over several years, actually. But here, this is all pretty much his senior year. The book helps sell it, that he was a really prepubescent or barely pubescent child, but he wanted to be a private detective when he grew up, so he had a spy kit. That actually sells it better to me than Renfro just kind of babbling on about matches here. And when you're a kid, that is appealing. I mean, Arnie, you and I had a detective agency. I remember reading The Back of Boy's Life and wanting to send off her fingerprint kits and disappearing ink and all of these kinds of things. I think it was what King was getting at, is that when you're a boy, 
all things that are in this realm seem fair game and you want to learn about all of it. And maybe you don't make the distinction between what is morally corrupt and what is every day. And that this kid, I'm not going to say that he was evil from the get go, but he was undiscerning. He did not know right from wrong. And to him, finding a Nazi was just an opportunity to learn more about, you know, devilish things. Well, and that's one of the interesting things about this movie. One of the, more intriguing parts I found. You know, we've talked about with like Evil Dead and horror movies. It's it's that forbidden knowledge, but it's always some weird like demonic book. It's something that doesn't probably exist in real life. Here, like I remember in high school learning about the Holocaust and like I didn't want to become a Nazi, but there was something fascinating about how such great evil could happen where I wanted to know more about it because it, it's just so mind-blowing like how low humanity sunk during that time in history. So to take something historical and that's actually what's going to turn you evil instead of forbidden knowledge out of a demonic book, that that's an interesting take. Yeah. And I knew some kids that just in part of the rebellion would pencil in swastikas on their jean jacket and would try to affect some of these things because it was powerful, because they knew adults would frown on it and they wanted to thumb their nose at authority. They weren't Nazis. They didn't know what they were doing, but they were doing what this kid was doing. This movie is not comfortable positioning a child that wants to reach for fascist imagery to feel better about himself. That's not what they want to portray. However you want to read these opening scenes, you would not think that this kid was going down that path. Honestly, when he confronts him with, I have your fingerprints and I have all of this, it sounds like justice. It sounds like this guy wants to get revenge. I've always been influenced by knowing the short story. So when I see these scenes, I see the black male and the guy obsessed with the Holocaust and wanting to know it firsthand, or at least hear it firsthand versus sanitized textbooks. And this is, again, very early on, and we're introduced to Ian McKellen, an actor I didn't really know before Apt Pupil, but he's playing Dusander. Yeah, he had a breakout year this same year. This movie didn't do very well for him, but he was up for an Oscar for Gods and Monsters. A Clive Barker film, actually. Yes, yes. He was very good in it. It was, I think, the role that really, you know, before Gandalf and X-Men, probably his most famous role. And so, yeah, you know, before that, I just think of him as BBC Shakespeare guy. You know, he just <laughs> he was always in those kinds of things with other actors like Derek Jacoby and all of that, that he just did that kind of thing. He did a version of Richard III where he played it like he was Hitler. I knew who he was, but I would have easily confused him with Oliver Reed or a dozen other Brits. I knew him as Death from the Last Action Hero, and that was it. <laughs> yes. Now it's weird, of course, because we think of him most famously as Magneto, the child who suffered in the Holocaust, who was a Jew who used his power to strike back against Nazi Kevin Bacon. You're, you're confusing your timelines. That was Fassbender, but yes. No, you know what I mean. But yes. He grew up to be Ian McKellen. <laughs> yeah, they were all the same guy. And so it is weird to see him play the other side of it. It isn't how I necessarily thought of Ian McKellen, but I think he plays this well. He certainly is playing the idea in these opening scenes of you're confused. I'm a innocent old man. We know he's lying, but he's lived this way so long. You can see that it's hard for him to give up the facade. And the makeup they gave him. 
I can't tell if that's a wig or just an intentionally really bad hairstyle that looks like a bad wig, but they put fuzz on his teeth and his, he's got kind of this Sigmund Freud goatee thing going on. Yeah, but he does not look healthy. Like, he has a heart attack later on in this film, and I'm worried he actually is going to pass away while watching it. They, yeah, they did something to him to really make him look like a tortured individual. You buy it. I think both of these actors are strong enough to carry this movie. Even though I'm a little uncertain about how they want to position Todd, I do think Brad Renfro is just compelling as an actor. I've seen him in other stuff and tend to like him, and I think... That, yeah, I would like to see where this is going. That this is going to be a duel, a joust, in which this young kid thinks he can outsmart this villainous old man. We know the tables are going to turn. I think these early scenes, he's naive. Because he's smart and because he's studied what he studied, he thinks he has the upper hand. But in fact, he is going to lose control over the course of this story. Renfro does a pretty good job here. My memory was that he wasn't very good. I was wrong. I actually think, despite being older than I pictured him, here in these early scenes, he does still play a little bit of innocence, a little bit of naivete. He is there to extort and blackmail, but yet he's still childishly amused by the puzzle that's on the table there. He doesn't realize how much of a bastard he's being. I like Renfro here. Like I said, I didn't really get his character at the beginning. Later on, I figure, oh, he, he's like, I don't know, it's that Twilight Zone episode where the kid will wish you into the cornfields. He, he almost has those kind of smarts, and which makes sense because he's the valedictorian. But I think he does play that level where, okay, he could be an evil little shit that could blackmail you. Like, I do buy it eventually when he's doing that. But there is also that innocence or that scared part of him that he brings. Like, when he brings Kurt over to meet his parents for dinner and they're asking, oh, what did you do during the war you're from germany and like you know it's just he's he's just giving a, a physical performance but you could tell he's worried and oh what is he going to say to get out of this i don't know that his response is that different from any kid at that age where you don't quite maybe trust your authority figures but you found out this big secret he wants to handle it on his own that's the way that i take it the fact that he doesn't want to run to the cops well, that may not have been normal for some kid in suburban Los Angeles, his first instinct to do that. But that he wants to press this guy, I don't take that as being evil or a jerk or anything. That just means in this circumstance anyway, he wants answers. And maybe he wants justice because he's read about all of this injustice. He wants to punish this man by making him relive what he's done. That it is a litany of horrors. And the effect that it has is more detrimental to him than it is to the Nazi. I never saw that he's trying to get justice on him. If you want justice, you really would go to the cops, you know? I don't know. You mentioned how we were private detectives when we were kids. We dreamt of nothing more than getting hard evidence to take to the cops and be praised in the newspapers as child heroes who uncovered a drug ring or what have you. Here, he's going there. He wants the details. It's not innocent. He wants to experience more than a book can give him. He wants to make it real. Yeah, what's telling to me is, you know, you do get that shower scene that we talked about, and he's, you know, washing himself down and I, I guess has a daydream or something where he's in those showers with the Holocaust victims because he's been hearing those stories of the gassing. But right after that, he gives Kurt 
an SS uniform and it's fetishized. He wants to see him march. It doesn't seem like, oh, I just want to learn what about the awful things you did in World War II, gee willikers. Like now he wants to dress him up and order him around. And there's something very sadistic and again, fetishized about that scene. This is where I'm seeing the filmmakers make the choice saying this guy wants to fight back. This is not someone that is reveling in an ugly story and fantasizing about, you know, how amazing it is. This is somebody that seems to want to punish, making him march around in that uniform. He doesn't think he looks cool in it. He wants to humiliate him. And I take it a little bit differently. I view this as almost like that scene in Pretty Woman where Richard Gere takes Julia Roberts shopping. Wow. I don't know if I'd go that far, but yeah, no, I do think he's getting a pleasure. It's not a sadistic, like, look at me getting revenge on this Nazi. I think he's fallen to the dark side at this point, and he wants to be more immersed in this part of history. He wanted the Nazi. This is him fulfilling his fantasy, sexual or not. I do think the scene's eroticized, but his fantasy is that Dusander is going to be this mean, maniacal Nazi. He's getting what he wants. Brad isn't torturing. If he is torturing, it's very much in that Fifty Shades of Grey kind of torture. So let me ask you, do you think that they're going for the same thing in this movie that they are in the book? No, I think they're going far more homoerotic here. Well, homoerotic, fine, but what I'm saying is, do you feel like the character's written to be the same character? Yes, I do. I think, if anything, he's more evil in here. No, okay, well then that would be a definite different reading than I'm having of this entire movie. I feel the filmmakers pulling back, that they do not believe that audiences would ever identify with a young American kid who thought the Holocaust sounded cool and who would want a Nazi to tell him stories because it would deepen his fantasies about fascism. That's not a place that audiences can go to. And so they don't try to write it that way. To me, the idea is that this character started out being pure and doing this for the reasons that anyone would want to confront a Nazi, but that it got into his head because he was a kid that didn't have anyone else to help him process this. And because I think the beginning is poorly told, I'm mostly focused when watching this that, yeah, he is someone that gets corrupted, but it's because he went after that knowledge. It's not because, looking at the poster for this, I always thought this was a movie about Ian McClellan recruiting young kids to become Nazis. It's not that. It's the kid goes to him and he makes that transformation. But I, I do see him taking hold of that fascism. It's just silly, though, how the movie ends up playing out. Like, when he kills, like, a pigeon. We're, we're going to see Kurt, you know, trying to gas a cat, and Todd is just going to, like, smash a pigeon with his basketball. It, it's silly how they go about it, and I think that's my problem, is I could go with, oh, here's this kid that went after forbidden knowledge, and it corrupted him, and he turned dark, and he became that thing that maybe he hated at the beginning. But, yeah, they do kind of pull the punches with what he ends up doing. Well, let me ask you this, Jacob. Would you be fine if the kid started killing people? Because that's what he does in the book. Well, that's what I expected. I, I thought, okay, he's going to end up going after Jews or after minorities because he becomes involved with this Nazism. I, I thought that's where the movie would go. Yeah, I like that take better. But yet, some of the things King has in his story are every bit is coincidental all the way throughout as Todd happening to be on the bus with this Nazi that he'd been researching. I think that Singer's draft here, his reshaping, adds a level of plausibility. It doesn't go as extreme. I mean, King's story, just to spoil the end of it, ends with 
Todd taking a sniper rifle to a freeway and indiscriminately shooting people until a SWAT team takes him out. I would have been fine with that ending. Like, that would not have surprised me if that's where this went. I kind of expected that. I think King's point is that fascism is not rooted in Germany and a particular time and place. That it can manifest itself anywhere if people have the right inclination to go to those dark places. What I don't like about this interpretation that I'm having with the movie, and I don't think it was Singer's intent, but ultimately it's kind of what he ends up saying, is that if you study the Holocaust, it's going to pervert your mind. I don't think that there is a Jewish person on earth that would not want these stories told. This is an important part of history that everyone needs to know. So to say that if you learn about these stories, it's going to turn you into one is not the right message to send. But I think it's all about how you learn about these stories, too. I mean, he's basically apprenticing under DeSander here, hearing the stories, dressing him up. This movie, it's weird because I feel the first act moves so fast. King's novella, if we'll call it that, is long. It's the longest in different seasons. I feel it's too long when it comes to the end. This movie, we've got Brad killing a bird 40 minutes into it, and yet we still have another hour 10 to go. So his corruption happens very, very quickly. His grades fall. He fights with his friends. That's all start of act two stuff, which means we have three more acts to go. I think that it just doesn't sell his motivations very well at all. I'm getting a totally different reading than you are, Stuart. That's because this movie is really leaving it all up to our interpretation. I mean, Jacob hasn't read the story. You've read the story and are seeing this as different. I read the story and I'm seeing this as the same because it's not telling us anything. Yeah, I almost feel like this could have been told about any historical event. I almost, by the end again, I feel like Todd... It's just kind of like the demonic child. Like, he would have corrupted anything that he sought after. Like, that's almost how they play it out. Like, he's, you know, we're going to see him get his revenge against Edward French, the guidance counselor at the end. It's, I wonder, just like I wonder why there's homoeroticism in this film, because I don't know what it actually plays up to. I also wonder, what is this really saying about Nazism or fascism? Because I don't feel like it ultimately says much. It's a evil begets evil type thing. I think this movie's trying to say it. I don't think it's as clear, though, because it is awfully muddled here. It just kind of goes off the rails, and I don't think it does a great job of displaying the power play. I think my favorite scene in the movie is where Todd is giving the man the Nazi uniform, and Dusander won't put it on, and finally he starts yelling, you know, I tried to do this the nice way, but you're going to put it on because I want you to. That is a great scene of Todd saying, I'm the one in control here. When that power balance shifts, when Todd has the bad report card and Dusander goes in and pretends to be his grandfather, I'm hearing it happen, but I don't feel the movie's doing a great job of showing me a gradual change in the balance of power there. That's because there are too many scenes 
with Renfro and McKellen and not enough with his other life. We know that he's friends with Joshua Jackson. We know that he's going out with this girl, but we don't have any scenes to compare and contrast to. When we do see them, the Joshua Jackson is saying, hey, you're ignoring me. And the girl's like, why won't you sleep with me? We never saw what he was like before. And I think that that's just because the movie is completely focused on this two-person duel here and not really looking at his life as a complete high school student. It's difficult for me to believe that this great jock and super academic has fallen so fast because, yeah, it's all done in a really uncompelling montage and we didn't have the dramatic scenes to show it. I mean, yes, there's haunting Nazi imagery that creeps in whenever he goes into the shower and what have you, I can believe that that gives him trauma, but that is not enough for me to believe all the things that he's going to do later would happen. Is the shower traumatizing him? I honestly, the way Renfro plays it, thinks he's fantasizing about seeing these decrepit, dying people in the shower. We really saw very different movies then. Incredibly (laughs) different movies. At the beginning, yeah, he is having nightmares and waking up in cold sweats because of what he's hearing, but I do think that changes gradually. Yeah, I think that shower scene, though, the look on Renfro's face is very ambiguous to me. It does not necessarily look horrified. Okay, I thought that was pretty clear. Here's my observation. Again, not knowing the source material, and I feel like, Arnie, you brought up this scene where Sander goes and poses as the grandfather to meet Edward French, the guidance counselor, and this is my first moment. I'm like, there's something else going on here. Maybe because it's David Schwimmer's mustache. I don't want to make assumptions here, but man, that guy was making a million bucks an episode on Friends, and that is a bad mustache. But you know, he's handing out, he's like, here's my home number to Todd. Call me anytime you need me. And he's We're going to see Todd with Becky, you know, and she says, maybe you just don't like girls. Like up to this point, we've seen this guy going after the story of the Holocaust. Now, all of a sudden, it it seems like they're starting to question his sexuality. Like, yeah, Joshua Jackson, why don't you hang out with me anymore? It... I think their relationship is very, very clear. It's a line right out of King's story when this thing comes to a head after Brad gets his grades back up and DeSanders saying he's got this letter that'll spill all the beans on Todd and Todd says, go fuck yourself. And DeSanders says, don't you see, boy, we're fucking each other. I, I don't know how much more clear that could be made. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things I think that will play to later on in the film when this takes a weird turn, but is it supposed to be sexual? I, I kind of took it that way. I, I don't think they were actually physically having a relationship. No, no. There, there's that subtext there. Yeah, strong. I just don't understand why the movie all of a sudden goes in this direction. Just to clarify a few things, because he can't get erect with a girl doesn't necessarily mean that he's gay. I do believe that if we had seen earlier scenes of them sleeping together, we would understand that it's the Nazi imagery in his head that's making that seem unappealing. But because we didn't have those scenes, there's nothing to compare to. So you're right, we're we're at a loss. What does it mean? Is he a closet case or is he simply having post-traumatic stress disorder? Either reading is fair because they haven't done a great job of setting up his high school life before Kurt. I also think that we have two separate things going on. We have a script that is in many ways true to King's stories. Some of the lines in this, not as much as Shawshank, but some of the lines in this are taken straight from King's prose, the scenes, the order of them, a lot of it straight from King. And King's story, no, I don't believe he was a closet case. I believe it was 
disturbing imagery. And honestly, I saw it as a fetishizing of the violence because the only time Brad can get it up is when he's thinking of torturing women and hurting them and things. But here, I believe that Singer, and not that there's anything wrong with this at all, I'm not saying this is a bad thing, but he has taken the story and made it far more ambiguous with its sexuality, with this, as you mentioned, David Schwimmer here giving home phone numbers as the guidance counselor, and the way it's shot in many scenes, and all of these close-ups. There's a scene in one point in the movie where I thought Ian McKellen was going to stroke Brad Renfro's face, but he's actually just reaching behind his head for a glass. Singer's playing with that. And because it's almost like it's a little schizophrenic because the director is going for one kind of tale, but the script is going after King's other tale, that we're just left with a non-cohesive film. Yeah, I, I do want to make it clear that I don't have a problem if this is the direction it wants to go. I mean, look, we're going to have an Israeli guy go, I used to chase girls, now I chase men. It's just, that's fine if you want to tell this story, but it because it doesn't seem to go anywhere, the, the homoeroticism, at least I don't see it going anywhere. It almost seems like, oh, if you, you know, that's part of being a Nazi. You're also going to be gay, so you don't want that. Like, because it doesn't play out in any way, I don't know what it's trying to say about it. Oh, well, I think what it does, because they've changed the ending so differently, is it gives the kids some kind of power over the guidance counselor. Because if you didn't have that subtext, he really would be screwed at the end here. He would have no collateral to fight back once his lie is exposed. But yes, Kurt is going to impersonate his grandfather, which when you really see the grandfather, no, he could never be. And that is going to basically be the thing that gets to change the power dynamic where now this kid is going to have to listen to the Nazi and the Nazi gets to order him around and do your homework and all of that kind of stuff. A quick note, just as an aside on the real grandfather, did you guys recognize James Karen from Return of the Living Dead? and Poltergeist, of course. Yeah, I guess cameo or maybe a job. But yeah, there the balance of power shifts and... I just don't think it goes on very long. It's like five minutes from the time of Dusander telling Brad you will study to the time that Brad's back getting A's. But in the meantime, we do get to see that Dusander himself is kind of fetishizing that outfit he gave. I mean, we see him put it on and start to stroke himself. Again, I feel like that was in the story itself, is that the more that both of them are willing to explore in detail the horrific things that were done, but do it in a way that glorifies and makes grandiose and cool in the mind of this child with a, a lost moral compass, I think that it brings out his old feelings too. I think he was happy being the old man that, you know, putzed around his house and did jigsaw puzzles. But now that, you know, he's got the uniform back and he's reliving all of these stories, He's thinking about, yes, how much fun it would be to throw my pet cat into an oven, or at least <laughs> this this doll of a cat. <laughs> I think it's a neighbor's cat. We see a sign up later on. I thought the cat got away. I thought he ran through the window, but... The cat does get away. I think he got the cat after again. <laughs> 
Yeah. Well, that, and that's talking about the fission in this film. It's like, yeah, we want to talk about how evil fascism is and how, you know, because this old man used to be a Nazi, now he's entertaining it again. Those tendencies are coming back. And what evil is he going to do? He's going to try to gas a cat, even though we're only going to show the cat get away. It's only they don't want to fully commit it in this movie. Only I feel like people would be much more OK with him killing people again than killing a cute cat. I mean, I definitely feel like that is definitely one of those taboos in film that when you kill the pet it's unforgivable and because we're supposed to find kurt to be seductive ourselves that he is supposed to reel us in that we are not to turn on him i feel like again this is either singer or the people behind singer more than likely second guessing these decisions and saying we cannot put a movie out this amoral in which it's a character in which we have a fascist american boy helping a nazi put a cat in an oven that's just they don't want to make the movie that King wrote. And so you have this very compromised vision. I don't know that Singer is successful in making these characters alluring to me. I don't think King wanted us to necessarily follow Todd on that journey. I think King revels in the moral ambiguity of his story. And here, I don't at any point find myself rooting or encouraged by or identifying with Todd or Dusander. I just find myself observing amoral people or evil people perform actions, and I'm trying to see if it's entertaining or enlightening, and it hasn't been. Well, here's the thing, Arnie. You're saying that you never saw this kid as wanting justice. That's crucial. If you never saw this kid going after this Nazi and punishing this Nazi because it was the right thing to do, of course you're not going to be compelled when it suddenly the fascism of his act starts overtaking him. That all of a sudden what seems like punishment just becomes a different form of Nazism. Well, then let's ask Jacob. Jacob, you're the one who didn't read the story. How did you take Todd's original action? I think I'm more in your camp, Arnie. I took it as I'm going to blackmail you because I want to indulge in finding out more about the Holocaust. I don't think he was ever going to turn Kurt in. I, I thought it was just total blackmail to get his way. So why did he want to know more about the Holocaust? Was he secretly anti-Semitic? Did he just have anger issues? It goes back to that evil dead thing. Is there some things you shouldn't study or else it turns you into demons? They don't give me a whole lot at the beginning here. It's he started studying the Holocaust because that teacher said, hey, go to the library and read more about it. And he got infatuated with it. And then he found out there's a Nazi in the neighborhood that he could talk to. Again, studying the Holocaust is not a bad thing. It is not going to turn you evil. No, but in this film, it is. No, we're not saying it is. We're just saying what's in this movie. What this no, movie? No, no, but that's, what I, that's why I'm saying that reading doesn't work for me. You, that is not going to work. I agree in real life, but this movie kind of makes that case. That's the problem. Yeah, for me, I have to believe that this kid did it because he thought that he could get this guy. If that was the case, he'd have gone to the cops. But I mean, it, it, in the end, let's just all agree, if we're having wildly different readings, none of which really are satisfying, this movie did a piss poor job of its setup. I don't think it is as bad as you guys are saying because I didn't see the movie that you guys are seeing. I think you're projecting a lot into this. I'm reading the movie. I mean, there I could go walk through the movie for you and point out facial expressions and decisions that were made and point to what happened in the book and show that they are radically different impulses, that they are pulling back. 
And I'm not saying that if you're going to do a movie about evil, immoral people that you can't do that. That's I could watch a movie like that. I've watched films like that. I You could say something about fascism and, and have these protagonists that you absolutely do not like. I don't think you always have to like the characters you're watching a movie about. So I don't think that's a problem for me from enjoying the film. But Jacob, Hollywood doesn't make those stories, and they would not have funded that movie. That is why this movie with Ricky Schroeder got shut down. That is why they have tried many times and haven't pulled this off in so long. It's because the fact that the story that King is telling is too controversial to be made. There is no studio that would want to make a movie in which a child who loves Nazi imagery tortures an old Nazi until he turns the tables and tortures him. I'll agree with you on this. Again, I said American History X came out the same year. I know that seems to be a favorite of many people. I never liked it because I don't buy that Edward Norton, who curb stomps a black man at the beginning, is all of a sudden redeemed by the end. I just... Agreed, yeah, yeah. That's hard for me to buy. I'd rather just, okay, let's just explore the evil and see what drives people to have these impulses. Yeah, I think that would have been a much better way to go with this, but... The fact that it does go into animal killing, I think Doosander's above animal killing. I like that Brad kills a bird because it has been shown that many psychopaths start with animals and then move on to humans. But Todd never moves on to humans of his own volition. And Doosander has already killed enough humans that I don't think he needs to get his jollies baking a cat. But again, that's a big change from the book because in the book... It's implied that homeless people are disappearing, and it's not always Kurt that is responsible for it. Yeah, in the book, they both are killing winos, but... And I thought this movie was going there when you had that scene where the homeless guy sees Kurt dressing up in the upper store. I'm like, okay, this is where they start going after humans. I'm waiting for something darker to happen. I thought this was going to be a much darker movie than it actually is, especially seeing that it has to do with Nazism. And this happens, we're now an hour 20 into the film. Elias Coteus, our Casey from the live-action Mutant Ninja Turtles film shows up as a vagrant. Well, he's been in lots of movies. I know him from Adam McGoyan movies, and he was in Crash as the car accident freak. He, he does a lot of weird parts like this. This is normally what he does. He doesn't usually do the Jim Henson action kung fu movie. <laughs> Here is where, I mean, it in King's story and in this movie, it becomes overt. He's trying to seduce Dusander and make, 10 or $20 by having a night with him. And they really put him in a weird outfit with a spangly scarf and sweater. Weird is one word. Gay would be another. Obviously, he is, uh, you know, a hired... It's a weird thing because he's way too old to be like a rent boy and, and what he's playing here. But I think that's what we're supposed to think from that outfit is that he's soliciting sex for money. But I don't like him well enough and I'm just not considering these people evil enough that when Dusander finally gets around to stabbing him in the back, I'm really all that moved. It's not horrific enough. It's not violent enough. I mean, the Singer did some strong violence in... Most of it implied, but very effective in The Usual Suspects. And here, this is all very clinical and almost television level, like NBC 9 p.m. slot. Yeah, I'm shocked that a Nazi is just going to try to stab someone in the back. Very inefficient way to kill someone. I, again... 
is he going to try to scalp him? Cut his throat? Do something more gruesome. Do something, you know, monster-like. I'm waiting for this guy to fully turn into the Nazi monster he once was, and it's just like a stab in the back with a butcher knife. I agree with the TV movie comment. I had that feeling a lot throughout this. That was ultimately my feeling about it, was that I'm like, a movie so controversial they wouldn't dare make it and then when they make it i'm like why wasn't this on nbc why wasn't this right after the shining abc miniseries i mean it really isn't that much more daring than something i would expect certainly now in this day and age of television you could put this on prime time and it doesn't hit the buttons that would make it super controversial. And just the camera work, the, the ability to create tension. I mean, a lot of what Singer had to play with, with usual suspects, was the mystery. Here, there is no real mystery about what is going to be done here. And so it requires him to build suspense through camera movements. And I mean, he tries, you know, it, we know it's coming, but how is it going to come? But here, again, Singer is really kind of eroticizing the relationship between the bum and Dusander. I have a secret love of opera, and I recognize this piece as Wagner, but I, I had to look up exactly which one, and it's Liebestad, which, I mean, that translates to a love death. Singer didn't pick this piece by accident. But here's the thing. I don't get the sense that Kurt picked him up because it was... Uh, sex fantasy for him. I think that this is a street character who has sold his body to stay alive, and he thinks that that's what he's being prepared to do. But as far as the connections between sex and Nazism in this movie, I think they are intentionally and wisely left vague. I do feel like Kurt picked him out because he was homosexual. I mean, they were victims in the Holocaust. Like that, They were targeted. It's on the pie chart the teachers are racing in the very first scene, homosexuality. The shock of what I've learned today is that you're saying Singer was not talking about that during the making of the movie, that this was not a dialogue he was having with his actors. He was not an out director at that time. This feels like a movie made by an out director. And so it's kind of surprising that he was still working through it. Yeah, I mean, he wasn't talking to the press about it. Who knows what he was talking to the actors about? I think he actually was talking to the actors about it, hence the lawsuit. But Yes, well, clearly, yes. There were some people that felt threatened by it. I feel like he's really trying to make this movie walk the line. And I, I view this as odd for a homosexual director to make a film that seems to equate homosexuality with Nazism. Like, they're both evils. I feel like... Todd and Dusander are flirting with homosexuality the same way they flirt with evil. I can't tell exactly what's going on here, but it seems almost to demonize homosexuality, which is not what I would expect. No, I agree. It is problematic, at the very least, the way it's depicted in this film. The real surprise is that he has a heart attack in the middle of it. And so that it's now going to bring in Todd, who has distanced himself ever since he turned his grades around. He got away from Kurt, but he is now back in the mix and is going to be coerced into finishing the job. This is the only addition that I really fully like that Singer did to modify the story in the book. Todd's like, I'm going to go kill some winos for fun because I'm compelled to without any knowledge that Dusander's doing the exact same thing. 
But here, the fact that Todd has to be put in a situation to do his first human kill. Later on, when Sanders is going to look at him and say, how did it feel? Turning around the very first question Todd asked him about the Holocaust, you know, saying, this is how you find out how it feels. It's the only single improvement, and it's coming way late into the movie. Yeah, this is the very end. There's not going to be that killing spree that I thought was going to be this film. And to be clear, even in the story, there wasn't a killing spree that we experienced. It wasn't graphic, detailed events of killing after killing. It's really mentioned almost in passing. And it almost is just like, oh, and another person disappeared and this and that and what have you. And yeah, there's three or four that we witness firsthand. Yeah, well, it should come earlier. That's the one thing I do feel like is cut the pigeon, cut the cat we should have really gotten to this quandary early on because I think that it's the question that we really wanted to ask. It's not a climax. It's the question of the movie. If we allow children to fantasize about these kinds of violence, are they going to do it themselves? And doesn't the fact that Todd at this point has been blackmailed. He goes over there because he thinks if Kurt dies that this safety deposit box with their story is going to be revealed. Like that isn't that why he ultimately kills the guy because he's worried about that. He'll be told that was all a lie afterwards, but I I feel like if you're going to say this is going to compel you to become evil, but they're not. Jacob, that's exactly it. This movie will not say that about Todd. It does not believe that Todd is evil. That's the problem with this movie. Todd is not evil in this movie. He is, though. He I, is, we, though. Yeah, he is not. He is. You are holding on to that book definition of him. No, I'm saying he is, and I never read that book. Yeah. And I think that this entire ending is predicated on the fact that Todd has become Dusander and become that level of evil that is still out in the world. At the end of this movie, one evil is taken out and one evil has grown stronger. That is the path of this movie. But I, Jacob, you're right. Here, he's just in a cover-your-ass kind of moment. He's not killing for fun. He's killing for protection. Right. And if you're not going to do it for that, then you're not asking the right questions. Then then your argument is a straw man and you're not getting to the issue, which is, again, why I'm not even reading that as a possible interpretation of this, that it has to be that they don't want us to believe that this kid has become the character that was in that story. Then why do they have him in the last scene? Using Dusander's dialogue, when he starts to blackmail French, he uses the same words that Dusander uses when blackmailing Todd. Yeah, it's irony. It's ironic that he has to go there to save himself. It's not ironic. It's a character fulfillment. Yeah, well, how bad is he going to be? Let me ask you this. Let's just kind of get to the end here, because what happens is Kurt goes to the hospital, Todd cleans it all up, it looks like he's going to kind of get away with it, and then, wouldn't you know it, Kurt is put in another amazing coincidence by someone... Yeah, another huge gimme. Yeah, his... This one's a little harder to accept, but, you know, who knows? That there, he is put side by side with a man that he killed his family back in the camp. And this is why I'm glad for private rooms that are becoming the norm (laughs) in hospitals, I'll just say. (laughs) I do have to say, as rote as a lot of this camera work and stuff feels, I do think that when you see this Holocaust survivor, like, he kind of crawls over to look at Doosander and, like, does this horrific look. I do feel like Singer maybe was 
channeling Kubrick a bit. I, I just that the look on his face is almost that low angle thing that Kubrick loved to do. Oh, it's Clockwork Orange all over. He's repeating that scene where the guy finally realizes that the poor soul that he brought in it was beaten up by the modern age was actually the guy that raped his wife. That's exactly what he's doing. It's it's an absolute theft of that stuff. But I also took this again as fitting the theme. Like, is the Nazi going to kill the man who tormented him? The way he's standing over Dusan, is the victim of the concentration camp going to kill the man who had killed his wife and daughter? You know, what is going to happen there? This entire movie plays with victim and predator. And Stuart, you don't see the fluctuations that I do with Todd, but I see it even with this patient in the next room. There's a moment where I think he's going to kill, and then he chooses to take the high path, whereas Todd took the other one. Of course I see the fluctuations. I'm just saying they're never going to write the character the way that you're portraying him. I disagree completely. You are stating that as absolute fact. I think you're wrong. And we will disagree about the interpretation of this movie. I'm not saying you're wrong. You can have your interpretation. I'm saying that is a wrong interpretation to me because of the things I'm seeing. And what we find out here in the end is as Kurt chooses to kill himself rather than be sent back to stay in trial for his crimes in Israel, is at the same time we have the kid who thinks he got away with it having to confront French, who has figured it all out that Kurt played his grandfather and that there's something very suspicious about what they were doing and why his grades went bad. And he is concerned enough about it that he is going to let his Todd's parents know Todd has to get away. I mean, that's the way that I see this is that would he want to be caught? What is he willing to do not to be caught? I don't believe that Todd is going to go out and start killing winos or starting his own concentration camp or being a Nazi. He hasn't been converted. But this movie would be better if we all believed that. Yes. But he's, they, that is the ending they don't want to tell. Again, the ending of the book is, is rage. It's, I'm going to go out and shoot everyone. They do not want to tell that story. And so we, what we have here is the irony that the character has to be the person that he tried to get away from in order to save himself. I don't see irony because Todd is doing that same damn blackmail thing that he did at the very beginning of this because I think he's just a bad kid. And, what does this have to do with fascism or Nazism? Like, no, he just knows how to blackmail people. I think this movie does pull its punch in that regard. This entire ending is changed. And my God, how anticlimactic is this freaking movie? <laughs> I mean, seriously, we've been waiting for so goddamn long to see Dusander blow into a tube and Todd to say, I'm going to tell people you tried to touch my naughties. I mean, that is really not a great ending to a film. Not only that, but they've tried to build up like the whole city is erupting with it too, that outside the hospital, because this thing has been publicized, we have, you know, Jewish sympathizers fighting with neo-Nazis, like in the streets. That the idea that this issue is like erupted and it, it spread beyond just two people in a room, that it, it, that is what's going on. It's just the filmmakers searching for a climax when they refuse to follow the one that was provided for them. And I'll be fair and say that King's ending wasn't that great to begin with. So I would have preferred if the screenwriter had gone their own way. I don't think that this is the worst thing you could have come up with here. The idea that he has to emulate Kurt and yeah, confront French in this way. 
I mean, it's an ending and it feels connected to what Singer is going through in his life. I mean, Singer is a predator still on the loose is what you're saying? Well, I'm not going to call him a predator because I didn't read the case files. But I do feel like there is a connection between him being accused of these things and then putting it in the movie. I mean, that is an incredible coincidence otherwise. Let me put it that way. That at the same time that this movie is made, young boys are going to accuse him of doing sexually deviant things and he's going to end the movie with a new ending in which that's how the character gets away. And that was always in the script and it in fact was used as evidence in the case saying, see, this is the movie they're making and they're living the film they're making. That was the crux of the case. Yeah, no, it adds something to this movie and it does just, it gives it maybe more than it really has dramatically, but it's an irony that is difficult for me to shake. That is why I feel like the ending does kind of work for me. Uh, Let me just say the last shots we have though, it's of Brad's eyes and of Sanders' dead eyes. I see the soul of Sander is living on in Brad, but I don't see how. I don't, yeah, like you say, I don't see Brad going and starting a uh, concentration camp or anything like that. I don't know exactly what it means. Does it mean he's just going to date rape co-eds at college? Maybe. I think that this movie didn't fulfill on raising the expectations between what was happening between those two because it pulled punches with who Todd was. The connections here at the end aren't as important as they could be. We haven't seen a changed character. Again, I believe that this is a character who had to use Nazi tactics to escape this, but ultimately is probably still a good kid and will... You know, he didn't kill anybody. I mean, I all right, he killed one guy in the basement because he had to, but he just... And he killed a bird. I mean, he's a bad kid. He killed the bird. Oh. The movie is telling us he's a bad kid with the bird killing. I recognize that as a despicable act. I'm not willing to condemn every child that kills a defenseless animal as a horrible person that... Pigeons with broken wings are not as cute as dogs or cats. <laughs> That's what it comes down to. Maybe that's all that I'm saying here. But one more thing before we go. So it was all a lie, right? The idea that Ian McKellen had a letter in a lockbox that if he died was going to expose Todd. Yeah, he told Todd that at the hospital bed. It was all bullshit. Okay. So yeah, I didn't catching that line. I remembered it from the book, but didn't catch it from the movie. I didn't really even know if he had gotten away. I mean, that was... Sort of the feeling I left with with the superimposition of eyes is who really won? If, in fact, somebody's going to go down and open a lockbox and this kid is going to be exposed in a different way. Well, before we get to recommends, I always bring in Stephen King's recommend. <laughs> and according to Singer... It was changed, so he didn't like it, right? <laughs> King gives this a big thumbs up. King was happy because about the same time Thinner came out, he liked seeing the more thoughtful, ponderous adaptations of his work. I'm using the word ponderous, but <laughs> he thought this was pretty faithful. And I can't find any quotes directly from King, but from Singer, he Singer said at the time King really dug this film. But did we? Jacob Stewart, do you recommend apt pupil jacob last week with shawshank redemption we talked about the genre of prison movies and and i think we all had some at least i had some reservations that they can at times you know 
they try to tackle too much and and try to say too much about prisons and criminals and law and order in America. And you know what? We didn't have that conversation here, but that's definitely a pitfall for films that want to tackle things like fascism and what does it mean? What drives us to do this great evil? It's tricky because you don't want to make it too simple. You don't want to make people that do great evil too sympathetic, which as Stuart has pointed out, that's that's not good for a Hollywood movie. You want sympathetic characters. And I think this film just falls into that problem. It wants to say something. I got to imagine if you're having this be about Nazis, you want to say something about fascism. But like Todd, when he's hanging out with Becky, this film is flaccid. Like it ultimately doesn't say much. And Arnie, you're talking about seeing the eyes of Todd over Kurt as he's lying there dead and souls transferring. Like I do feel like, okay, it's just a Stephen King novel at that point. Like let the demon from one thing go to another human and that evil lives on. But what does that have to do with fascism? That's a problem for me. If you want to use this kind of imagery because of the history behind it, you have to be more thoughtful about it. And we've seen Brian Singer be more thoughtful about the Holocaust in superhero films of all things in X-Men. Like it deals with this kind of stuff so much better. So for me, look, I like a lot of the acting here, but the story is just such a muddled mess. It's confusing and it ultimately says nothing. So it's a not recommend. Just to respond to a couple of things there. Yeah. He handled concentration camps much better in the first X-Men film and much worse in apocalypse though, (laughs) with the superpower (laughs) destruction of Auschwitz. True enough. (laughs) Stuart. Yeah, I mean, for me, the disappointment is a story that just was a page turner that I didn't think was perfect, but boy, I couldn't stop reading it becomes a movie that, man, I'm checking the watch. And that is the disappointment here is that it's slow. It's almost like a TV movie. To me, they have changed the character in a way that he his motivations are no longer readable. They may be more relatable, but they don't really, yeah fulfill an arc it's pretty much a pretty good kid that gets his head clouded because he listened too much to a nazi and now you know has to emulate him to escape uh, a circumstance that is not that scandalous i mean ultimately even if it got exposed that he knew this nazi for a year and tutored under him he's a kid you make mistakes when you're young i mean he did not become the sociopathic murderer that king created and so It just isn't a very fulfilling story, neither as a tragedy nor even as a redemption story. I don't think you're going to get a lot out of this movie. But, you know, I do like artistic failures. They kind of get it every now and then. I did feel like there were moments where I'm like, boy, this movie is close to a recommend. I do like these performances. I do like a scene here and there. But yeah, like the first half hour was a recommend for me. Yeah, I just it, it because it's too long and there's just too much that's not working for me to to go on the line. It's too bad because I really did want to recommend this movie and I feel like their its reputation is maybe even better than what you guys are saying. I feel like you guys are much harsher about it than I am. But yeah, in the end of the day, yeah, I just can't I cannot give it the green arrow that I thought I would. It's it's a mild not recommend. And three people see three different movies in this, because I see this as evil lives on. What is the motif? Evil happened in Germany. Evil still happens today on a much smaller scale. But I think it's evil begets evil and evil finds evil. I think that the blackmail at the beginning, there's no way to read Todd as a good kid. But 
The film is thematically failing, but its fatal flaw is the film is fucking dull. It just goes on. I, like I mentioned, by 40 minutes in, Todd has already become the submissive in the relationship with Dusander because of the report card, and we still have an hour to go of just watching Brad go on a date or watching Brad get a little paranoid watching Dusander kill a homeless guy. It just goes on. This thing... I really wanted to like it. I do like the short story a lot, and I do think that the short story could be improved upon. This is so much worse than that short story. Yes, the two leads give great performances. David Schwimmer sucks to high heaven. I mean, just really <laughs> Love awful. his mustache. Well, I mean, he's a mealy school official. I, I believe that. I mean, he does seem like, you know, a pushover. He's just playing Ross. I don't understand what makes him so steel-hearted that he would go after an already graduated student about a Nazi tie. There's nothing in his performance that sells me obsessive. Todd's reading of You're Hitting on Me works for me as well as anything I can come up with with Schwimmer's performance. But no, this movie is terminally dull. You're blowing air in your IV tube to get out of it? It's a strong not recommend. I mean, if I was a bird with a broken wing and this movie's on, smash me. But see, and the funny thing is, I still think I'd rather watch this movie than Shawshank again. But, you know, we've gone there. I'm not going to. That's a little too strong. No. And you recommended Shawshank. That's why I'm in this quandary here. I think you're right, though. I think you really hit it for me. This movie had 20 minutes shorter. It would be a green arrow. It would be a mild recommend. I could go with it if it didn't belabor its meager points. But it has meager points. And high aspirations. It softens the material. And then it just drags it out too long. And it's the dragging that is unforgivable. A 90-minute version of this, a 90-minute cut, and I endorse it. But at almost two hours, no. Can I just say I'm glad to finally hear you not recommend Singer because I think you've been way too polite to him in the past. You're still upset over Superman Returns, You're fucking you? right. Yeah, that's all that it is. And the funny thing is, I don't even really like Usual Suspects that much. You think I'm some fan. I've never been a big fan of his work. And I was once, and then I saw his other stuff. All of his stuff is mediocre. Come on, Stuart. You own Jack the Giant Slayer. Come out, (laughs) tell us. I really don't. I think all of his movies tread that three-star line. I don't think he's ever made a four-star movie. I don't know if it's in him. I think he's made a four-star movie in Usual Suspects. I think he made a zero-star movie in (laughs) Superman Returns. And here, I think he made a a one-and-a-half-star movie, honestly. I think that he lucked into some great casting and then squandered it. Well, yeah, like I said, it's I find this a, a curious failure. And I can forgive a movie a lot if it's not working in the right way. And I do feel like this movie is an interesting failure. It's no doubt it, it's not working in the way that they intended. But I still think by even trying to adapt that story, uh, it's kind of ballsy. And so there's something about it that I find very watchable. I, even if it's dull, I find this movie uh, almost worth seeing. Well, my red arrow says stay the hell away. I mean, stay away from it like it's a war fugitive Nazi living on your block. But... We won't stay away from different seasons or King. We have one more week going to a movie that's a beloved classic these days. Rob Reiner's Stand By Me. It's our third and final installment in different seasons. And we're going to be covering that next week. All I remember about it is that after I saw it, 
the real litmus test with everyone I talked with is, did you cry? I mean, that, it was the movie I remembered I most battled. Like, I'm not going to cry. I'm not going to cry. I'm not going to cry. And I cried. So we'll see. Am I going to cry? I cried when I was a kid when I first saw it, but I don't know if I'll cry today. I haven't seen the film in probably 10 years. I'm really looking forward to it. I only saw it once, and I really, it was very powerful then, so it, we're really opening up a time capsule. Like, I'm eager to go back and see who I was then and how it stands up now. All I know is it's the film that got me into oldies. Well, Jacob Stewart, thank you for joining me. To our audience, thank you for listening to this week's episode. We greatly appreciate it. And if you've enjoyed what we're doing, head over to iTunes. There's a link from our homepage. We would greatly appreciate a five-star review. You can click the stars. That's awesome. If you leave a couple of sentences about us, that's even better. So you can find the link to do that from our homepage. And head over to Books and Nachos. I've covered a lot of King over there, and I'm playing catch-up, but I'm covering more King over there. You can find that at booksandnachos.com. We'll be back next week because Now Playing is the podcast that never goes away. Boy, the time for discussion is over. This is the way it is. You know this means we're through, don't you? You won't be seeing me around here anymore. No. I suppose I won't. This is the end. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. Yes, sir. Absolutely, sir. I mean, I learned my lesson. I can honestly say that I'm a changed man. Now that you've heard the movie review, head to booksandnachos.com to hear Arnie's reviews and analysis of Stephen King's original short stories and novels. You played it beautifully, boy. I knew you would. And come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com to hear our reviews of other Stephen King movies, such as Carrie, The Shining, Children of the Corn, Cujo, and dozens more in our archive section. Nothing left but all the time in the world to think about it. Also on our site, hear reviews of other films such as Maniac, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Saw, Riddick, Friday the 13th, The Avengers films, Star Trek, and more. Find hundreds of movie review podcasts at nowplayingpodcast.com and come back each week for another new movie review. You think Mighty Mouse could beat up Superman? What are you, cracked? Mighty Mouse is a cartoon. Superman is a real guy. No way a cartoon could beat up a real guy. Yeah, maybe you're right. Would be a good fight, though. Also at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash book, you can order Now Playing's film review collection, Underrated Movies We Recommend. This book has 125 reviews about films you probably haven't seen, but you should. You're gonna be a great writer someday, Gordy. You might even write about us guys if you ever get hard up for material. While at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss this review with other listeners. Hey, we all need friends in here. I could be a friend to you. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. There are places in the world that aren't made out of stone, that there's, a, there's something inside they can't touch. Hope. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Sorry, Vern. I guess a more experienced shopper could have gotten more for your seven cents. 
You can also help out Now Playing by leaving us a 5-star review on iTunes. A link to Now Playing's iTunes listing can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. And for the briefest of moments, every last man at Shawshank felt free. Now Playing's Different Seasons series is edited by Heath and Arnie. Nothing stops. Nothing. Well, you will do the hardest time there is. Now Playing Credit Narration by Brock. Shut up! I don't shut up. Shut up, I I grow grow up. up. And when when I look at you, I throw up. The film discussed in this podcast is the property of its respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. Watch ye therefore, for ye know not when the master of the house cometh. Mark 1335. Always like that one. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts, and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. You've no right to come here and say these lies about me. Now playing as a Venganza Media production, copyright 2016, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. Well, guys, I, I better get home before my mom puts me on 10 most wanted list. I'll see ya. Not if I see you first. But there's still stuff about it that I find interesting in it not working. As the plane goes by. Like an airplane. I know. I What can I fucking do? <laughs> Jesus! Is there a closing line? I'm looking. Oh, you got to do a different one for each movie, don't you? Not necessarily. <laughs> yeah, give us a, a, a sentimental, hopeful quote <laughs> from Shawshank Redemption for the end of this one. We'll be back next week because this is the podcast that never goes away. Is that a line from here? Yeah, it never goes away. Okay. And we'll be back next week because don't stop recording because we do have one pickup. Jesus! Have a secret love of opera. And so I recognize this Wagner piece, but I did look it up. It's Liebestad, which translates to a love death. You you want to say Wagner? Did I say Wagner? You did. Oh, damn it. Why did I say that? Because I'm looking because at notes. Because it's spelled Wagner. Yeah. yeah, I'm looking at notes. and Yeah. I mean, because that's a very common English thing to pronounce the yeah. W as a, as a W. And not but a obviously, v. I know it's fucking Wagner. I, I know you do. I know. But I'm like, <laughs> if you get attacked from a museum, oh. then you're going to, Wagner is going to be a problem for you. Yes, yes. Jesus! I really wanted to like that movie. That's the sad